0: Most of us tend to make our way through this world as a tourist.
1: You know, nobody would want some foreign visitor coming into their house and just dumping a bunch of trash in their living room, then walking out.
0: Underwear up in the trees, trash everywhere. I think some people go into a wilderness and see that it's nothing but randomness.
1: You know, I mean, the reality is that people that visit these places—that's that's not their home. You know, and that's that's the main thing that needs to be understood. Their their home is is generally in a city or a place that's far removed from from that situation
2: hey guys welcome to the survival show podcast with craig and me david and producer ben where it's our job to take you step by step through the mindset skills tactics and gear that you need to survive almost any crisis emergency or disaster and it's our desire to show you how to use the lessons you learn today to thrive in your life tomorrow craig ben how are you guys doing today
0: doing good man doing real good uh it's been a
2: it's been a good day guess what i did this morning what did you do this morning craig i had a workout dude and i had a great workout today too ben how about you man did you work out today that's what everybody wants to know i didn't
3: (laughs) what tuesday's my day off oh okay okay gotcha i play uh basketball from 8 p.m to like 11 every monday so ah, okay usually i just take it off because it would be like five hours in between basketball
0: and working out if i did work out Alright right, guys, our mission here at the Survival Show podcast is to help you progressively increase your survival IQ so you leave out of here better prepared at the end of the show than you were right now at the beginning. And coming up, we're going to be talking to Mr. Matt Graham, the author of Epic Survival, as well as a big star of Dual Survival, Dudes You're Screwed, and all kinds of cool stuff. So we're pretty excited about that. And here's what we're going to be covering today in a number of ways: is we're going to be taking a look at the and key in on mindset and skills and tips of living in wild places because Matt has done that quite a bit. Uh, and you'll know from the interview he's doing that right now. Uh, along the way, we're also going to be discussing Matt's very unique way of living in the wilderness and how and why he did it. We'll be deconstructing a real life survival story. But before we're done, we're going to dip into the mailbag. For a question or two from you, our listeners. But before we jump into all of that, David, can you tell everyone how to get the most out of this podcast?
2: Okay, guys, I want to let you know that there's a lot more to this podcast over at patreon.com, The Survival Show, where you can join the community so you can submit your questions for our mailbag segment and get some valuable rewards that can help you take your training and preparedness to the next level, which is really our heart and our goal. So we put together a suite of essential resources starting with the survival show guide and notes. So you could do like I do and print them out in a binder and then start your own personalized survival guide. So to get those and a lot of other really cool rewards, go over to patreon.com, the survival show now, and start at only a dollar a month. You can jump into the community and claim these and a bunch of other fantastic rewards, like the skill of the month and a whole lot more. And that's over at Patreon.com, The Survival Show. Craig, do you have anything else to say about that?
0: No, man. Just uh, It's a community of people. It's you and us. Everybody that's listening, it's you all, it's us. So uh, help us build this community. It's just a dollar a month, you all. So jump on in there. We really appreciate it. A uh, dollar a month is doable for anybody and everybody. And uh, we, I just can't tell you how much I thank everybody that's already jumped in on that. Um, it, it, that we've gotten a lot of fantastic feedback we're getting a lot of uh, I'm getting text and messages and emails saying hey I love the podcast uh, people are reviewing the podcast over on iTunes or wherever they listen to the podcast uh, Google Air and what have you and so it's just it's really been good uh, Ben mentioned a couple of weeks ago do some things to help our little hearts uh, I can tell you right now that helps our little hearts when we know that what we're doing is helping you so uh, we appreciate it hey Let's do this. Let's, let's get into this interview with Matt. How's that sound? Let's do that. Hey, I'm excited about having Matt Graham on the Survival Show podcast today. Matt has led a very and most interesting life from a very young age, choosing to spend large chunks of his time in the wilderness alone, learning its ways. He's a survival and primitive skills instructor, author, and most widely known for his time on Dual Survival on the Discovery Channel. Matt, welcome to the Survival Show podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you, guys. Good to hear you, David, and, and meet you, Craig and Ben. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, so what's going on in your neck of the woods? Where Where are you right now?
1: <laughs> I, am, I am actually in the National Monument in southern Utah right now. I, have, I live off-grid. I have about 40 acres. Um, I have a little 180 square foot cabin that I live in no no running water electricity but it's it's absolutely gorgeous like outside of my back door is slot canyons and little creeks and it's actually it's an amazing place for practicing hunter-gatherer skills because I can literally walk out my my back door travel 80 miles east and not even hit a dirt road nice and I, hopefully my fire is not gonna causing any disturbance, but it's crackling in the background back here.
0: Oh man, it makes me feel at home right there. That sounds good. That's no problem at all. Cool. <laughs> hey Matt, since the, this is really the first time I've ever had the opportunity to chat with you and trying to get prepped so I can have a good conversation with you. I watched several of your interviews that you've been doing over the last few years. And, and, and I've been most pleased to hear you speak of learning from nature and your connection to the natural world, which you're already talking some about, but would you care to tell everyone about your your basically your backstory growing up and how you got to this position in your life where you're emphasizing basically connectivity to nature. And I guess in a sense, what what does that actually mean to you, your connectivity to nature?
1: Yeah, yeah. So for for me, I actually I did grow up in a city like everybody else. I wasn't raised by wolves or anything like that. Um had a place in Southern California and I was I we we actually lived we had a cabin up in the mountains. And then we had a place that was pretty close to the ocean, too. So we kind of split time back and forth. And early on, I got a lot of connection to nature through my dad, who loved to hunt. And he would read all the Yule Gibbons books about wild edible plants and take me around, show me like, you know, the basic stuff, asparagus and um, watercress and mint. And my mom just loved the beach. So I spent a lot of time there swimming around like a fish. You know, mostly I was boogie boarding. It doesn't sound as romantic as surfing. But it was just easier to get our board to the beach than than a surfboard, just spending tons of time in the water in the mountains and really getting excited about that life lifestyle and Then every year, my parents would send me to a camp called Indian Camp. It was like a two week camp in the summer, and we would learn about um, various skills. It was like you know the basic things of like how how to build a, a wigwam and how to make uh, medicine bags and a lot of uh, native games, stuff like that. And I, I got pretty excited about just that lifestyle of being out there and, and using my hands and my creativity, working with natural products. I really got excited about. And, um, and then I, I I remember seeing a Clovis point at one point. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. That'll do it to everybody. And it was just, I thought this was the most amazing thing. Like inherently, there was something inside of me that knew that, like, the people that could create that had to have some kind of special knowledge, some kind of special wisdom about about this earth, this planet, um, and it just it just rang, just rang true in me. And ever since, I've been excited about the skills.
0: Right, so that, so uh, even as a kid, I mean, it was obvious to you that there was something just different there. Is it? Is there anything from that time other than maybe the Clovis point that jumped out to you? Uh, so a particular skill that that you maybe started then that you really, really dig still today? Any, any flint napping or atlatls or anything in particular?
1: Yeah, I mean that. that I mean that journey I just spoke of. I mean we're talking seven years old, you know. So it's kind of a lifelong process of just being mildly exposed to the skills here and there, even though I was still going to school and had a conventional life. Um, When I was 17, I moved to Yosemite Valley and I fell in love with climbing and I started doing a lot of mountain running. And mountain running is actually was the catalyst to really get me into the primitive skills and survival and living out in the bush because I, I started doing these longer, longer and longer runs. And pretty soon i was like well i don't want to come back i want to spend the night out but i want to do this <laughs> as, a, as a runner you know and and i didn't want to carry stuff so so i just started trying it and seeing what would happen so i just go on my weekends i'd just go run out in the back country covering some sometimes up to even 65 miles by the time i was 20 years old um, and i would cover these distances and then i would make camp for the night and collect some food and figure it out and then I'd run back the next day, sometimes covering a hundred miles in the weekend.
0: So when you say, um, the word you use that you figured it out, how did you go about figuring these things out? Did you have an instructor in that, at that time in your life or were you reading books or just literally just testing plants on your own while you're out there?
1: I was trying to get the information through as many sources as possible, not limiting anything. So. Um, I had I had about 16 books on plants and survival <laughs> that I would I would reference all the time and cross reference and make sure that, you know, what I noticed with cross referencing is that, like when it came to edible plants, like every book said something slightly different about it. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. so I, I but I'd have enough reference to put together that I'd kind of figure things out. Um, and then I also when I was living in the valley. There is this curator there and he was, he was an amazing gentleman, super skilled. He actually, he was making issue style bows, which were a style of uh, juniper bow that had a sinew back on them. And he also took milkweed fibers and he would make hundreds and hundreds of feet of parachute thickness cord from this. this
0: Golly, that's a time, that's a time crunch right there, man
1: not only that, he would make these giant hammocks that were used for carrying stuff with this cordage. So he's very dedicated to his art and his craft. And he actually, he taught me how to do a hand drill fire for the first time. After living in the Sierras for almost six years and practicing primitive skills, I was just looking for a community that people that were doing it. So I I found in the, a little ad in the back of a magazine said Boulder Outdoor Survival School, and it had a arrow going through it with a stone point, and I was like, this might be it. So I called up the owner, um, talked to him for a while, and just felt like it was the right choice to come out to Utah and uh, be a part of what's what's called the Boulder Outdoor Survival School. Um, so I was working there for uh, about ten years guiding. Guiding courses and I was leading their hunter gatherer programs. Just being really excited about everything. I loved taking students out on these two week immersions that were Stone Age based and and I was learning a lot during the process too. Uh, but it got it did get to a point for me after after so many years there that I just felt like I was teaching the same things over and over to the students. My my growth kind of hit it. A point where it, it just felt stale and I felt like I needed to understand a little bit more and it was it was more than just the skills it was more that I wanted to understand what it felt like to really live off the land for more than a month at a time like I I just I just had to know I mean it was simple as that so so I came up with a list of a few goals that year and I wrote them down on on paper and one of the goals was Um, I'm going to walk out in the wilderness and stay for three months. And then I looked at it and I'm like, I'm like, no, no, that's not long enough. (laughs) So, so I scratched (laughs) up, scratched out the three and put a six there. (laughs) And, um, and I decided I was going to leave on the winter solstice, which is kind of a tough time of year, but, um, it just kind of what my season afforded. And it actually turned out to be really, really good time of year because the day I left, had this beautiful like magical snowstorm that was like one of those ones where it's warm, but these big, thick, heavy flakes just are falling down. And it was like the kind of snowstorm that was like, I actually walked out in the middle of the night because there was like a filtered moon coming through the snow, um, the clouds. And then every once in a while the clouds would shift a little bit and the moon would peek out. It was just so surreal. It was the absolute most brilliant time to go and, and heading out, heading out there in the winter time like that, like, even though that was a harder time of year, like, you know, I, I did take some rations to start out. And then I knew that the process really the cleansing process was going to start with me building a shelter and hunkering down for a while before I started roaming. So I, it was perfect. Honestly, like it was probably one of the best six months of my life. Um, I had this opportunity to really deeply connect with the land in a way that I hadn't before. And and what that meant for me is that when I first got out there, the first first week or first couple weeks actually just felt somewhat similar. Like, oh, I'm just kind of out here, build my shelter. I, I started sewing up some stuff with some skins that I made and um, I was enjoying it. You know, I was having a little fire inside my um, it was kind of a wiki up slash little mini Earth house that I built. There was a sense of loneliness at first as well. It, probably that first month, kind of, I, I felt those those lonely slash hunger pains. And then after about a month, it it those pains started being replaced with like a, a deeper connection, and I started feeling a lot less lonely despite being out there longer length of time because I started feeling. Um, more a part of everything and and that's what I was looking for I was looking for a chance for my my skill set to grow to the point where I didn't feel like an alien visiting this foreign planet anymore you know and I think I feel like today a lot of people feel that way on on their own home planet they don't feel like they're connected to it they just feel like a foreign visitor because we remove ourselves so much from from actually being outside and um once I stripped away those veils, like I actually saw like what happened to my my senses physically too. I felt like everything started to become so heightened, like what I could smell and hear and feel and everything was just was just at this super ultra heightened level. And I don't think it was necessarily that there was this grand physical change, but I think there was an awareness that happened where I became aware that Oh yeah. You know, as humans, we're supposed to be able to smell these things and hear these things and feel these things and move this way through the wilderness.
0: Yeah. they. Uh, I haven't done anything nearly that long, man. I did. I, I've done two day trips where I did something real similar. Awesome. I'm right there with you. I think uh, sometimes when I'm working with people, I, you know, I kind of refer to it as being a tourist that most of us tend to make our way through this world as a tourist to it and we don't we don't actually we're not actually there we're not actually inhabiting it we're just kind of passing through it, would that be an accurate description do you do you feel that way or
1: yeah definitely i i feel like yeah tourist is a good analogy cuz i always even when i've traveled you know i i it, i always hate to like travel somewhere and just be there for a moment and then move you know i, I think really experiencing any situation or a place is always beneficial as much as we can experience it. When I think of tourists, sometimes I think of somebody that's moving through life for the stories or checking off a box and stories are great. I mean, we all like to tell stories, you know, and it's fun. And then you have a photo album, but, but, you know, doing something like what you did or, or myself with a six month solo, you you don't, I, I didn't do it for the story. I did it for the experience.
0: That's a hard thing to kind of pass on to people too. Is that something that you felt um, while you were there? I mean, although you're, you're experiencing this solo time and you're gaining so much from it, is it, I've read a lot of different people that spend a lot of time on their own. Some of them get this overwhelming sense that they need to share that with other people. Is that, is that something you experienced as well? And there's, there's probably just as many people that don't feel that way. So I'm, I'm really interested on your take on that.
1: No, it was it was quite interesting because I, I I did go through like a series of emotions during that that time frame. It was interesting because, like, actually, just getting to the three month mark, um, it it kind of felt hard. Like there was a there was a sense of accomplishment as I approached that mark, and I think some of it was because I remember writing that on paper. <laughs> it was the original three, <laughs> but um,
0: oh, I see. Yeah, I,
1: I found that. I I remember when like around three months came, I'm like, oh man, I I could have made this three months. But then like around four months, I really started getting back into the experience and, and really just really enjoying it and really feeling like my body went through this big cleanse and it was feeling like it was, I felt like my body had become, you know, more of a paleo body again. It was adapted to these lower calories, extremely low carbohydrates. um, And my energy wasn't falling falling anymore at that point and I was getting excited about this further further deepening connection and learning new skills too like it um that's when what during that time when I realized how how important the atlatl was for me um because I I was I was I was making uh I had a bow and then I made another bow and I was shooting that and then I also had the atlatl but the outlet was actually getting me the meat and it was requiring less time to maintain. So I'm like, wow, this this tool might not look as cool and I'm target practicing, but it's it's giving me what I need to answer your question. When six months came, I, I started I, I was roaming in the canyons, you know, on occasion, I'd run into somebody and I'd be like, hey, what, what day is it? You know, because <laughs> so, I was trying to figure <laughs> out how to come out exactly on June 21st. Um, and then, then I, as I get closer, you know, they told me the day and then I just kept track. And But I remember thinking at that point, I'm like, wow, this experience has been so powerful. You know, may, maybe, maybe I'll just come into town once every six months and hang out with friends and get some food, then go back in. And, um, and I, I seriously had that thought. And then then another thought came to me and I was like, oh you, you can't do that, you know. This experience was so powerful. You need to go out, you need to continue to share it. Um you need to immerse be a part of culture and society, but do the best you can to maintain those skills you have.
0: Hey, I've got to ask. When you came back and you and you're living somewhat closer to where everybody else lives, maybe Uh, a roof over your head that you didn't make with your own hands. Is that, what, what was that experience like for you coming back around and being around more people and stuff of that nature?
1: I mean, I came back to, to, I just had a little wiki up that I lived in even, even on on the culture lands, but I, yeah, I know what you mean. I, you know, coming back and being around everybody, basically my tribe at that point was the survival school. So I would, uh, when I got back it was a little surreal because the survival school we we had a 40 acres of land that we we based out of um, when we're not actually in the field and it has a there's a beautiful creek that runs through it and there's um kind of a pinion and juniper forest behind there and everyone kind of scatters out there in their natural structures or teepees or or wall tents or whatever and um then we have like a main main office that's kind of like our commun- communal area and i remember walking into the main office and and granite this is let's see this was 10 years ago so that would have been 2008 and i walked in the office and everyone's just on, on, was on their laptops that was the first thing I noticed (laughs) oh wow and I'm like whoa what happened in six months like I didn't I didn't remember that (laughs) (laughs) and I I still didn't know how to use a computer at all at the time I didn't even really have any desire but it was just so surreal I felt like I felt like either I went back into time or everybody went forward and didn't realize it
0: (laughs) (laughs) and left you behind yeah (laughs) Yeah. oh wow That those kind of uh, that's uh, that's another seems like a common thread for people that spend a lot of time outside alone like that. It just the the coming back, whatever that might be. It's it's different things, different people. That seems like a I don't want to call it a culture shock, but it's definitely something different. You talk about giving back to the earth more than you take co- from yeah. it. Uh, would yeah. you care to expand upon that for us here?
1: Yeah. So for me, like the primitive skills, kind of they steered me that direction. I it wasn't something that really happened till maybe in my later teenage years but I I I started to realize that like these places that I was going to and feeling this connection with like all these trees and plants and animals not sound woo but they sounded they felt like friends I didn't want to take more from my friends than I was giving back to them so that translating you know how I felt in my relationships to the earth and to the land just made sense for me and it, and it and it always has, like, I feel like, I feel like it's, it's, it's just the right thing to do. And energetically, it always feels good when you give, you can give something to land and not, not damage it.
0: I'm right there with you, man. It's, it seems like, it, and I'm working on a, a, at a volunteer effort with our local forest service here in Kentucky, we're, we're having a lot of folks that are really interested in the bushcraft survival type activities. Uh, they're going out into natural forest areas, national forest areas, and they're, they're leaving behind you know, wiki ups or they're leaving behind some kind of major bushcraft shelter. So we're I'm trying to reach our audience too and, and just make sure everybody is aware that, you know, part of doing this properly in my mind, and it sounds like you too, is it's just being stewardship minded and working with the environment rather than what a lot of people in this community tend to do is just basically conquer it, which I'm not a fan of conquering it. I'm a fan of working with it. Is that
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think when we're talking about stewarding the land, we we have to think about it in terms of um, at least two aspects. I'm sure there's there's way more categories, but one is aesthetics. You know, are are we just leaving it? Are we leaving trash on the land? Are we leaving it disturbed? Are we busting up rocks and tearing apart plants? Um, you know, that that's one important aspect. Another, uh, from a hunter gatherer standpoint, is am I Am I damaging the food resources that are here for human consumption and animal consumption and the plant resources there? And that's something I learned, like being out, even prior to my six months, I actually lived in this, this one canyon for about eight years, and the majority of my food came from the land. I wouldn't say all of it, but more than 50%. And, and I got to see how I would interact with these plants. These nettle patches and watercress and mustard patches, and and I learned that certain ways I'd pick it weren't good, and certain ways that I harvest it were, were great. Um, and also, I I saw that too with the fish populations. So I'm like, okay, how how do I harvest fish in a way where I'm not damaging this creek, but I'm increasing its productivity? And I I did that by observing the fish and their patterns. And noticed that. The fish with bigger heads and skinnier bodies were the ones that ate more fish and less insects. So I would start to pull those fish out and, um, and then encourage the growth of the other medium-sized fish. And then likewise, if I found pools that were just too, too clustered with little fish, I'd thin them out a little bit.
0: I love talking to you. I love hearing what you're saying. Uh, it, It sounds very similar to a lot of the same ways I feel about it. Here's a couple words for you. Um, random and orderly. Uh, I think some people go into a wilderness and see that it's nothing but randomness, but actually there is a lot of order that we can get involved in and actually work. We can get in that order. Does that, does that make sense? It seems like what I'm saying is that you saw a certain fish and to, to average ordinary person that's not in depth involved in a wilderness, they just see those as a bunch of fish. It's just very random, but there's an orderly fashion to how the environment works with itself and, and heals itself and and what have you.
1: Yeah. I mean, anytime, I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about being human is we have this intellect to analyze things. I think in a way that most animals don't. And I think that gives us the ability to walk into the area and somewhat be a caretaker. Like we walk into that wilderness ecosystem and we look at it and we're like, okay, it's, it's either doing well or it's not doing so well, but what, what can we do as humans to interact with it and still keep it on its same plane or make it
2: better? Can we just hone in here for a second, guys? And I think this is a really good point to talk about how we can engage with the environment. And I know, Craig, that we've talked about in previous podcasts that there's an issue with more people getting out. Now We want everybody to get out there and experience the wild and, and however they, they can but we can, can we talk a little bit about no, no trace and stewarding the great natural resources that we have all around us? And how do we get out? How do we get out and do that without impacting or diminishing our experience next time or others that follow us? Well,
1: I think, I mean, there's definitely this, uh, in the backpacking community, you hear the word no trace a lot. Um, in the primitive skills community, you, you strive for positive impact. And, um, and what that means is certain aspects that I was referring to about, about stewarding plants and, and learning like the right time to harvest the plants that you eat and how to harvest them. You know, it's, it could, it's simple things as you know, like in nettles, you want to, you want to grab the tops in the early spring. Then as they get bigger and the seed heads are ready to form, then you want to start gathering the leaves and watercress. You just want to gather the tops and not pull them from the roots. Um, when you're gathering cattails, you want to kind of sporadically move in and and collect it, not just in one big clump, but sort of break up your your pattern. And actually pulling out the rhizomes stimulates the patch. And there's there's all these different things we can learn. When I gather yucca, you know, I replant the well instead of gathering the whole stalk, they connect together. So a lot of times I'll dig underneath and and gather the connecting roots, and then they shoot off more. So it's really it's really a matter of observing the land to try to understand how how to be positive stewards of it. Now, now I feel like the the backpacking community is one aspect, you know, and that's that absolutely. When you're backpacking, you're bringing in all these artificial elements. You want a completely no trace because those are artificial elements. In the primitive skills community. Um, I feel like at some point we have to start educating people on what's appropriate positive impact to leave with the land and what do we need to dismantle, you know, because like for example, if you you build this beautiful fire pit and you, you cook in this fire pit and then you clean it out, um, and then if you just take apart the fire pit, maybe you'll have another irresponsible person come, put it in the wrong spot, so... At some point, we have to create education on what things are appropriate to leave and why we leave them. You know, it's a huge, broad topic, but I, I don't think eliminating human trace altogether in the wild is necessarily going to teach us anything either, but it's eliminating our artificial elements in the wild, I think is important. You know, I mean, the reality is that people that visit these places, that's thats not their home, you know, and thats that's the main thing that needs to be understood their their home is is generally in a city or a place that's far removed from from that situation and um and, and emphasize that you know it's important to keep the home for the wildlife and the animals everything that lives there keep it clean keep it healthy for them you know nobody would want some foreign visitor coming into their house and just dumping a bunch of trash in their living room and then walking out
0: Man, that's a good point. I think a simplified message like that is is maybe the key.
2: So there's three things that I, I think can tie into this to make it really simple for people to uh, to do this and incentivize them. I think the biggest incentive for people to steward the land is to get out and experience it. And I think, Matt, your appreciation comes from the fact that you have connected and you've actually spent significant amount of time out in the wild. And that's been my experience. I grew up in outside of the city of Pittsburgh. So my, my early days were, were Boy Scout camp. And one thing that we always, always did, and this carried on through the military and everything else was what you pack in, you pack out. I think that's just a really simple thing. And at first I didn't really get that because it's kind of inconvenient. And sometimes you just want to leave something behind because you don't want to carry it out. For some of us, that's trash. So if you pack it in, pack it out. There's certain things that don't burn <laughs> and shouldn't be burned, like those foil wrappers for our for our breakfast bars. They don't burn very good and that leaves something behind. And you've already redu- when you've eaten that, you've already reduced your weight quite a bit. So put it in your pocket. Pack in, pack out. As you experience the wild more, that experience I think is going to incentivize people to appreciate the land and think about the next person after you. And think about your next time in that place, too. You want to come back. What I found is that trash breeds trash. When somebody leaves trash or they they leave, they leave cut a tree somewhere that they probably shouldn't have cut or they haven't policed the area up very good or may, maybe left some paracord with nylon around that stays around for many years, That that seems to just create a mentality in some people that it's okay just to leave things behind. So those are just some quick things. I don't know if you guys have anything more to add to that, to help people get out and and uh, keep the experience fresh for others and for themselves the next time. Yeah,
1: no, I, I agree with you. It's, I think anytime we go out, we have to think about, you know, what the next person that visits, what's their gonna experience going to be with what I left here or what I didn't leave here. Um, and, but it also has to extend to the animals too and the plant population. I think sometimes we don't fully take that into consideration as well, especially as a Especially in the category of, of people that are practicing survival, primitive skills, and um, uh, division of wildlife resource management. Like, believe it or not, some sometimes, like, you know, when you, you have somebody that's like, okay, we got a non-native species, it's non-native, let's get it out of here. But maybe that non-native species has been there for a thousand years. Or, or less even, even a hundred years, and it's gone through many, many generations of wildlife adapting to it. It's become it's become their apple tree, basically. And we come in there and we kinda play God over the wildlife home when it's not even our home. And there's no species coming into our backyards and cutting down our apple trees saying they're not native. You can't use them. So there I think there has to be a big picture of like what are we tr- truly doing? Are we making this land more f- food productive for people and animals? Or are
2: we taking away from what's there?
0: That's really good yeah, stuff. A good, that man. apple tree is a great analogy too, man. Thank you for sharing that. I've never heard that. That's that's really good.
2: So Matt, you've been on Dual Survival. Dude, you're screwed. but You're kind of like the poster child for new survival shows on Discovery. You know, So you've got other cool shows on Discovery Channel. And can you tell us a little bit about these and your roles and maybe some lessons that you've learned as you've progressively done a bit more and more on tv
1: yeah i started doing tv basically when i turned
2: 39 so i'm
1: 46 now and i I got got to the point where i just I knew I needed to share on a broad stream, so that's kind of what made me jump into that. And also, I wanted to cultivate some land to be able to teach from. As soon as I got an email account, <laughs> like stuff just started showing up. We got this new show. You want to try this just for word of mouth? And one got pitched to me about running the Oregon Trail, and I was like, "Oh, this is cool!" Because I was doing tons of ultra running at the time. I kind of went through the process, but we couldn't permit the show just because it went through too many lands. And then shortly after that, first show I I did. It was a series. was called uh, Dude, You're Screwed. Uh, I had done, done one documentary prior to that called Living Wild. Dude, You're Screwed was uh, it. It was. It got pitched to me as like this, uh, <laughs> the most authentic show ever to be made. And they're just gonna put us in the most raw, remote places, and you got to find your way out. You know, and that's and that's what it sounds like on on paper. And that's what it looks like and you're like oh cool this is exciting you know <laughs> and then uh then I I got there to audition and I realized there was more than just the drop there was guys playing a little bit of pranks and kidnapping each other <laughs> oh, gosh! <laughs> <laughs> and uh I'm like oh my god I don't know if I want to do this now but I decided just to go for it I'm like all right let's we'll just see what happens and um and it actually turned out to be a fun show I, I really enjoyed the guys that I worked with on that show there was definitely challenging ele- elements to um on, on production side but um overall i think it was a good experience and tv inherently what it 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 should do i think my my genre what it should do is educate and entertain you know and, and i think dude you're screwed did that i think there was educational elements with a lot of just sort of silly entertaining moments as well
2: and so did dual survival come after dude you're screwed then
1: um yeah actually <laughs> um so so dude you're screwed like like I said I mean it was a good show I really enjoyed working with the guys but I I just felt like I wanted to do something different um and discovery pitched um continuing on dual survival um uh, with me but I still had time in my contract to serve so I kind of worked out some deals where they sort of shortened that term and I was able to do a show that showcased a little bit more of my skills and, um, with dual survival, it, it, I definitely, I enjoyed the, the filming aspects of that show a little bit better just because I was able to engage a little bit more into the the skill set of primitive skills and the survival and the MacGyver world and all that stuff.
2: And then since then you've done a couple other shows.
1: Yeah. And yeah.
2: maybe tell me a little bit about those.
1: I left dual survival at the end of my contractual term i i was considering coming back i they they definitely wanted me back but i but i also needed a break from just that style of format and then i was offered a, a show with national geographic um, and it was just a segment called living wild but it allowed me to be back home and film a little bit more of my lifestyle how it was so it uh, it was just a nice break from all the travel and doing this global type survival. So I, I just jumped on that for a season um, and, and really enjoyed it. And then went on to do a couple more shows after that.
2: So can you tell us a little bit about some, maybe some lessons that you learned through those? Cause I know there's been some controversy about, about TV survival and yeah. how how that's approached and, and um, you know, doing dangerous things and, and maybe showing not necessarily the best techniques or, or strategies or tips and all those sorts of things. So can maybe, maybe you don't even have to focus on that, but whatever you want to say about uh, some lessons that you learned, and maybe even if there's anything that can transfer over to our listeners, what what they can learn through what you learned.
1: Doing survival on TV is a a very tricky balance because, because the filming aspects take actually takes away most of your day. Like it, you're literally two thirds of your day is dedicated to getting the shot, talking about it, doing the retakes, getting the pretty angles, um, and then the other quarter of your day is actually dedicated to doing it. So sometimes what the audience perceives is like, "Wow, they did all that in that time," but in reality, actually, sometimes you can do more. Um, so when you're when you're doing survival TV, like the audience has to keep in mind, we're we're doing our best to recreate um, what actually happening out there and actually doing what's happening out there but it's reality is not reality like what you see is is you're seeing a television show and and we're i i'm doing the best i can to deliver an authentic experience um sometimes sometimes there's I, I'm not going to name names, but there are people that cut corners, they do skills they're not familiar with. they try to edit it real pretty to make it look like it worked better than it did, and things like that. That's something that I've been really cognizant on, on my work to, to avoid not doing stuff that i'm haven't haven't practiced over and over and, and if and if it is new, being very clear that I'm doing something that's very new for me um, and just being as authentic in the representation as I can is super important. There's, there's just so many people out there that are excited and enthusiastic about the skills and they're, they're good presenters and they end up on TV. And I'm, you know, I don't have anything bad to say about them being excited about the skills, but sometimes the skills get misrepresented by um, people that don't have experience behind them.
0: Hey, I would just like to say, I'd, I'd be real clear that it's, I appreciate the fact that you take uh, authenticity uh, very importantly, uh, that's it, it's to somebody that knows skills for those people. I mean, there's so many people that watch those shows and, and they don't have much of a skill set. But for those that watch a show like that and 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 do have a skill set, you can see it. I mean, and and, it, and it, I just appreciate the fact that you you are authentic in the way you did things. It's it's just a good way of educating people and, and seeing realism because the world is full of real. <laughs> There's so much fake too and I and getting out in nature is real and the more we fake it, um, the worse off you know, the people when they go out and experience it, uh, the worse off they're gonna be. So I'd rather us be real as as quickly as we can.
1: Absolutely. No, I appreciate that. Um yeah, and I think it's it's important too for the audience to realize that, that people do have different ways that they approach being outside. Like like for me, I, I think I categorize my experience with the outdoors into three general categories. One is like adventure sports, because I really do like, I like running and I like surfing and I like climbing and things like that. Um, and then there's the thrival aspects that, that also really get me juiced where it's just complete surrender to the land where it's, where I'm doing hunter gather, the tools that I make are natural. Um, I'm completely engaged in experience. And then there's the survival aspect, which actually don't do as much on my own, but it tends to be more of what I'm doing on TV because that's how it's presented. It's it's a mixture of of kind of all of these things together. It's um it's adapting to a situation. It's using utilizing any materials on hand, whether they're man made or natural, and and engaging in some athletic aspects of it too. TV is an interesting <laughs> interesting ball game, but yeah, I think it always is important to make sure that the audience is really clear on on the approach because we all have so many different approaches to it
2: yeah it sounds like you really parsed the uh, complications of of tv and threaded the needle on uh, on how to be authentic and i i really i really appreciate that matt you had mentioned these three areas the outdoor adventure sports the thrival and the survival aspect i guess a question i have then is can you share some guidelines and action steps that our listeners can Take right now from what you've learned and go from there to start just right where they're at right now to improve their skills, get some more time outside, and enjoy wild places. For you, it sounds like it was a progression. Your love for adventure sports and not wanting to carry weight and loving being outside took you on this journey. You have inspired them to get out. Now, what's the next step for them and how can they? improve their skills and uh, engineer their life to get out more.
1: I mean, I will caveat this with with it is a very personal journey and and how how much a person wants to surrender and give themselves to the experience is is a very personal thing. I I think for me, I, I, I felt called to really give a lot. I think if what you're saying for the average person, that's really just, it's just a whole foreign concept. They really haven't had the experience behind being out you know, creating a certain amount of a safety net, but also not having so many comforts that you don't really figure things out is important. And I think one way to do that is uh, for someone to go out if they're in a cold climate, just bring a sleeping bag. Don't don't worry about it, at least the first time, you know, may, maybe take certain elements away. So bring a sleeping bag, but maybe bring no food for two days and see what happens. See how See how you start like really looking at the land and trying to figure out how to get food because you're you're most likely not going to die of two days without food you know and then another situation an environment that's maybe not extreme maybe try going out without a sleeping bag or blanket one night seeing how it feels you know and and taking these little steps you know just even just one night of just getting rid of a comfort sometimes you can learn a lot more than just taking all the comforts for you know several weeks or a month yeah i love
0: it man that's that's really good stuff that, that, that is sound very sound advice i really appreciate your your take on it hey but before we go any further i guess to sort of wrap things up tell us what's coming up for matt graham i mean what what does everybody that's listening need to be aware of what's uh, any whatever you can speak to, I, I'm sure there's some things you can't speak to yet. But w- tell us what's coming up. Yeah,
1: so I I do have a new show that's going to air on Discovery International. I think in January. I I can't really tell you much more about it. If uh, people follow me on my social media, I have a Instagram called Matt Graham Earth Skills. As soon as I'm allowed to give dates and everything, I'll I'll definitely be posting there. I'm working on two other projects right now. One I'm very excited about. That's um much more primitive skills stone age based that'll take place later later next summer um and then i think in another month i am i am actually flying back overseas to do another show that's it's it's kind of a show that it mixes sort of uh, how do i describe it without giving it away <laughs> um all i could say is it's a, <laughs> it's a very dynamic athletic show that covers pretty big distances of train while doing primitive skills.
0: Dude, I'm there. You might get you might get me watching TV doing that kind of stuff, Matt.
1: I saw one of the first cuts, and I, it's brilliant. Yeah, visually stimulating and, and fun show for sure.
0: Matt, Graham, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you being with us today.
1: Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate you guys too.
0: All right, everybody. So uh, just for subscribers only, we have these questions for Matt. If you could choose only one primitive tool to take with
2: you in a survival situation, what it would be and why? To hear Matt's response to this bonus question, go over to patreon.com forward slash the survival show. That was a really fantastic time with Matt. Now we're going to get into our break it down segment for today. segment, we're going to take a look at a story from our experiences or recent news for the purpose of breaking it down, learning from it. We recognize that hindsight is twenty twenty, and we have no intention of negatively criticizing people in these stories because, you know, we've all had bad and good experiences. And frankly, I learned from the bad experiences sometimes better than the, the good ones. So we want to pull anything we can out of this content, look at the story and learn from it. With that said, Craig, can you share this week's episode's story. I
0: I picked this one up straight from Backpacker Magazine's website, backpacker.com. If you've never been there to look for survival stories, then please do. Just go to backpacker.com forward slash survival. They've got all kinds of stories there on uh, modern day ways that people have survived situations. and, And they're really great opportunities for people to learn. So I'm going to read this one from there today. About five seconds into the fall, I realized I wasn't going to stop. The moment when my mind switched from, whoops, that was a stupid slip, to holy crap, this could be really bad, will stay with me forever. It was the last run of the day in British Columbia side country, and my legs felt like noodles. The area we planned to ski was pretty simple, except for a little zigzag through a gap in a cliff band. As I hopped to the left for the zig, my downhill ski skidded on an unexpected patch of ice. I started to slide downhill, picking up speed. My friends watched in horror as I disappeared over a 15-foot cliff. I cartwheeled. My skis popped off. My poles flew away. I might die today, I thought, right before I heard my helmet crack against a rock. When I stopped 300 vertical feet later, my body felt like it was in a vice. Everything everything hurt. When my friends found me and rounded up my gear, I could stand up and communicate, but I was dazed and quivering all over. I skied out, but later I would learn I had broken four ribs. Two weeks after the file opened opened up the pack I was wearing that day. Inside, I found my clean canteen double wall stainless steel bottle. It was nestled against the back panel, exactly at the spot where I had snapped my ribs. My bottle was still half full of water, but with a huge new dent. During one somersault, I must have landed on a rock. The bottle absorbed the blow, snapping my ribs, but likely sparing my life. I changed as a skier and a hiker that day. I couldn't shake the feeling of falling far and fast, not knowing when I might stop. For a while, I'd cringe whenever I looked at the bottle, a testament to a careless moment and the thin margins that I had taken for granted. By now, I reach for it regularly. It reminds me how lucky I was and am. It reminds me to be smarter and more aware in the mountains. David, what do you think about this story?
2: You know, this is a really interesting story because I, I think it represents kind of a cultural moment we're in. Uh, something that's that's happened is I believe that social media has sparked a lot of adventure because we can now instantaneously share our adventures through various platforms and what I'm getting at is, there's this whole movement towards extreme sports. I remember, I remember not too long ago, before the iPhone, uh, we have we have some friends who their son was. If I mentioned his name, some of you, some of you folks who are in the motor, motor would know who he is. But he did the craziest things on a motorcycle, broke almost every bone in his body, and become really became really famous. And now we've got all these. And I'm not saying this was an extreme sports situation but i would call it extreme (laughs) okay i would call this extreme crazy but this just this just brings me into that whole genre of i think ben had mentioned this that a lot of younger people feel like they're indestructible so so we're doing crazier and crazier things i remember when i was into mountain bike racing way back in the day when it was just becoming big And some of the crazy things I did there that weren't nearly as crazy as some of the stuff that I see on YouTube now, I just can't, this guy was, this guy was very fortunate. I can't imagine how many people die in a month's time or a year's time who are doing these crazy extreme sports things. So that was the first thing that I, that came to my mind. I I think you've mentioned this before, that it's great to go out, do some fun, adrenaline filled activities but have a safety net for yourself and walk yourself through what could go wrong and try to avoid those areas that could put you in extreme risk. I mean, this guy could have died 300 foot fall.
0: Yeah. And I mean, and I agree a hundred percent. I do think that I, I don't want to stop people from living life, adrenaline fueled, even if it is, uh, but doing just a little bit of recon, uh, and there's no excuse for not doing it anymore. Just because you can't climb a mountain, uh, doesn't mean that you can't use mapping software to be able to look at as much of that mountain as you can before you go down it and recognize that that, uh, there's some cliff edges on, you know, 200 meters into your ski or or your hike or whatever it might be. Uh, Those kind of apps, those kinds of mapping softwares, all that kind of stuff is available to you. And somebody would say, well, you don't have cell service up there. Well, it doesn't matter. If you've got a, if you've got a good phone that has up-to-date GPS, you do not have to have cell, cell, cell phone service. Uh, it's one of the things that we, we need to make sure that everybody understands is that uh, if you've got a GPS unit in your phone, which most people do with a modern phone, you can use mapping software right where you stand. Uh, even without cell service. So that's something important to remember. Uh, And it's easy to do that recon there on site or to do it from a, from a map as best you can. Uh, One of the things that I thought of that came up is what do you wear on your back and to be aware of it and think about the unfortunate event that you might fall. I mean, so this, story obviously brings us to mind, but I, I think of people that wear, uh, fanny packs and, and certain pieces of gear. I mean, I see a lot of bushcrafters that carry axes and stuff on their packs, and I'm not saying you can't just wear them in a place that if you fall, they don't cut you or they don't dig into you, or they don't hurt you in such a way that, that, uh, the fall itself is, is a problem because we're all going to fall on occasion. If we're outside, we're going to trip slip or some of that nature. So, uh, that's all valuable,
2: something to Great, that was a fantastic story. So I'm thinking now we can take a look at the mailbag. What do you think? Sounds good if Ben's around. Ben, are you there, sir? Alright
3: guys. So this question is from Nathan H. and he asks Here's a question for you, and you touched on this a little bit in the last podcast. How do you not become overwhelmed to the point of paralysis with getting prepared? There's so much to think on and so much money that could be spent. You can spend it on food Backup, power, water, self-defense, training your family, training yourself, uh, bug-out plan, bug-in plan. There's so much. I feel like I have a good start, but I still feel overwhelmed. This is a good question. One that I feel very close to my heart too. because he's right. There's so much, so much you can spend your time and money on. So, Craig, why don't you take this one first?
2: Oh, I wanted to start.
0: <laughs> well, I'll get it started anyway um, because I like to take control like that. But uh, it is interesting, Ben, because I think th- this gentleman is uh, nearly the same age as you. Basically, has this has the same nearly the same family makeup as you because that's interesting that he feels the same way as you do. Um, I know it. It may seem like a canned answer, but listen to this podcast. I think that's a good way to get started, uh, and I, this. This guy and Ben and people like you guys that feel like you're overwhelmed. That's why we created that disaster plan checklist so that it starts you from the ground level. You start checking things off and that way you find out what you need to be doing. For you, And it's not easy to put together a checklist that anybody can pick up and utilize, but we put a lot of effort into making it that way so that if you're in an urban environment in Los Angeles or you're in a rural area of Tennessee, you're going to be able to get something out of that particular checklist. And, uh, I think that's real valuable. So as far as starting, I think that's a good way. What do you think, David? What can we say to help out this guy, Nathan, who's a, actually a friend of mine who's come to several of our classes?
2: Okay, that's really good. So he's already coming. I just want to mention first that the disaster plan checklist is over at Patreon, and that's where you guys can pick it up. I also want to mention one other thing that's over there. I think you did a really good job, Craig, of of simplifying uh, self-defense over there. Not that it was the end all be all, but I think just by people watching and practicing a few of the things that you mentioned in those two videos that would help them i mean that that'll take you from zero self defense knowledge and situational awareness to a much higher degree than you had when you started watching those
0: i've been teaching self defense and combatives and defensive tactics stuff like that for you know 20 plus years and one of the best things to do is to, is to meet people where they are and those videos are there for that person who's never had any training and to to get you started so Definitely. And and that's when he asked me this question personally, that's what I told him. But, uh, but for everybody else that's listening, if you feel the same way, then, then those things will be able to help you really well. And,
3: you know, like Craig said, this podcast is free. Yeah, exactly. So if you're struggling with finances and trying to get prepared that way, this podcast podcast is free you can listen to it
0: as you go hey one other thing is you're saying that ben it makes me think uh one of the things that david keeps saying over and over it seems simplistic is go get the show notes and print them out and put them in a notebook Uh, that way you have a, a, a a gathered material that you can reference no matter what the situation is, you you have that reference book material there with you, and that way you can look at that stuff and and start with your checklist and do all the other things that we have in it. Obviously, you can connect with them uh, without printing them off and and hit the links too because there's a lot of links there. But uh, that's that's a fantastic resource. And again, I I don't I'm not I'm seriously not doing this to butter David up, but I did not understand the vision that you guys had, David and Ben, for those notes. And I have absolutely fell in love with them myself. So um, for everybody listening, jump in there and get those.
2: Yeah, the bottom line with those are, that's exactly what I wanted for myself. So I made that available for everybody else. I got a couple other things to add here too. So I want to encourage anybody who feels like they're in this situation I want to encourage you not to focus on what you lack, but celebrate where you are. Okay, the the first step to all this is acknowledging that, hey, I am maybe not as prepared as I would like to be. And that's, that's a place of humility. That's a place of, I really think that's a place of strength for people to start from. So basically start where you're at. I want to encourage people to keep it simple. And you'll notice we'll have some tips even in the notes for this particular show to help you guys. And a big, huge thing that I want to encourage people, don't fall into the marketing trap. Don't fall into the survival marketing trap that you need all of this miscellaneous gear. We talked with Creek, and this was a couple of one or two shows ago. When we talked with Creek, he proposed a really, really simple few items, bug out items, and they are in the gear checklist for the notes for that show. And he also suggested, and and we all kicked in a little bit, on items that people can get for home preparedness, too. And I believe it was two shows ago. So, again, celebrate where you're at. Keep it simple. Start where you are. Don't focus on what you lack. And don't fall into the marketing trap. You do not need all the garbage that's out there. Trust me.
0: All right. How about we get into the thumbs up, thumbs down segment, my friend?
2: That sounds good, man. Let's do it.
0: So we're going to be doing something a little bit different for this one, guys, a uh, little foreshadowing in that both of us want to discuss an item that we both feel that we want to help you with. Uh, basically what we want to discuss are items that we as individuals, David's going to have one. I'm going to have one that we are both giving a thumbs down to something that we feel like uh, is not a useful product at all, but because of their widespread use. We want you, the listener, to know why. All right, so I'll go first. The one that I want to bring up is a snake bite kit. Um, We did a a pretty extensive interview that you can find on our YouTube channel at Nature Reliance School, uh, where we interviewed a snake expert about snake bite kits and everything that goes along with them. And that basically, David had just mentioned this, don't fall (laughs) into the marketing trap. Those things are marketing traps. They are not useful at all for snake bites. They will do nothing If you're envenomated by a snake, whether it's a rattlesnake, copperhead, moccasin, coral snake, it does not matter. Any of those, any of those snakes, uh, snake bite kits do not work. That's not how snake venom works. It either attaches to basically muscular tissue or it clings to your blood and there's nothing you can do to extracting it out. You're not going to be able to do that when you get bit by a snake. So stay away from a snake bite kit. David, tell me one. What, what are you giving a thumbs down to?
2: What if I like snake bite kits? Well, what if I, I like them? Well, that's why we have
0: me on the show, because I don't mind. Because I don't mind at all hurting people's feelings. Uh, I like education. I like facts, and the facts, my friend, are that snake bite kits don't work, and that's why I interviewed somebody who, you know, literally milks three hundred snakes a day. We ask him those type of questions.
2: I think it's clear that that's a double thumbs down on that. And one thing, I have a question for you on snake bite kits. Yeah. Again, this is, don't fall into that marketing trap because almost anywhere where there's outdoor goods sold, you're going to find that little, they're usually yellow kits. Yep. But the question I have, if you used a snake bite kit or you tried to suck the venom out, could you envenomate yourself?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, he, here's the problem is that uh, the whole cut an X on the bite side and suck it out well, you just sucked if 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 there's any snake venom on the outside of the wound okay because there's a good chance that there is then you just put that venom into your mouth and now it's on a direct current mm-hmm. straight to your brain and that's not mm-hmm. cool uh you're still again no matter how much you suck on it whether you're using your mouth or you're using a a kit that's made for that purpose then uh, you're not going to be able to get it out, so you're wasting your time. The one of the things that this snake venom expert and he has a uh, the reptile zoo here in Kentucky. I asked him what can you do, and the only thing you can do for a snake bite uh, where you are envenomated is to get your car keys and get to the hospital. Uh, there's nothing mm-hmm. you can do, uh, nothing that you can do in the field that is actually going to make much difference
2: at all. Thank you, my friend. That helps out a lot and uh, clarified some things for me. So mine. Is, bum, bum bum button compasses. What do you think about those? Uh, you're, it, this
0: is yours.
2: <laughs> this is,
0: you're supposed to. You're supposed to put yourself on the line. If it helps you, I'm giving them a thumbs down. Okay. So you okay. You, you move on with how you feel about them. Do you do you confidently <laughs> feel good about a thumbs down on them?
2: I do. I do. Yeah. When we were putting together the micro survival kit for the MSK1 knife. We spent about two years, I worked with the guys over at Wazoo Survival Gear. One item that I had on the list that I thought would be helpful was a button survival kit. We literally got button survival kits from all over the world. And without fail, except for one, they all either came with a bubble in the button compass or they were just completely garbage and inaccurate and they produced a bubble in a short period of time. The one that actually worked worked for a while, but it was just too big for the knife. But I, I just you see them in survival kits all over the place, and I just I can't recommend them. I, I I just can't. What do you have to say about button compasses?
0: Man, I was working on a project with an engineer a year or so ago, and we were going to put a button compass into this thing that I basically put together. This tool that I had put together with him, and I ordered button compasses from. Oh man, I I don't, I got so frustrated. I bet it was 20 different companies and I never found one that was accurate. And usually because they're so small and inexpensive, the companies would be, because they were, because we were looking at buying several thousand of these things. They would, the companies were pretty quick to, to send me five to 10 of them and I would lay them out and they would all be pointing in the wrong direction. I mean, it was insane. They're just It's just not something that I would depend upon. Now, if I had one, I would check it. I would check it with a good compass. And if it's right, I would use it for a general sense of direction. But I would not in any way, shape, or form depend upon those at all. I mean, I'm not even giving it a little angle. I'm giving it a complete thumbs down. But, you know, just get a good compass, man. Just get a good one. (laughs) I don't know what it is about our culture that thinks that the best thing that we need to do is get, have stuff and then get the tiniest version of it that we can possibly get as if that's valuable because we saved an ounce. You can go get any sporting goods store off the internet and get a good suunta compass for about 12 bucks, or you can buy a button compass for six. You saved a couple ounces and you don't have anything. I mean, you could have bought a booger for that and the booger is going to be as good a given direction as the button compass. I mean, it's, it's crazy. <laughs>
2: Okay, Craig, so since you're the master of wisdom today, can you take us into our Sir Thrival segment?
0: Absolutely. So we've covered this in several podcasts now, so I think everybody has a good understanding of what they are. But I picked up a quote today from Zig Ziglar. People often say that motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing. That's why we recommend it daily. And I dig that from a survival perspective. Uh, you know, we've talked about STOPA, stop, think, observe, plan, and actively stay alive. You've got to find a reason to live in a survival situation. So find ways to motivate yourself. Sometimes it's minute to minute. Sometimes it might be, you know, every day I got to, I got to get up. I got to get some things done, to stay alive. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there suffering from any sort of mental anxieties that it might be just a daily occurrence that you've got to find a way to to get yourself up and get yourself out of bed. And as Mr. Ziegler has stated right here, one of the things that I do is, and this is real simple. I just go to Google and type motivational quotes every day. I know we talk about working out and it's become sort of a joke, but one of the things that I do every day is I will type into Google Right before I work out and do motivational quote, and I'll read several of them because there's a a hodgepodge of them that come up every morning. And I always find something that just resounds with me. Uh, You can get apps that throw quotes at you on a daily basis, and that way you have some motivation for yourself and, and those that you care about.
2: That is awesome. All
0: right guys, so coming up next time on the Survival Show podcast, Creek Stewarts coming back. We've got survival shelters, uh where we're going to be discussing all kinds of big shelters, little shelters and uh what we need you to do until then is go subscribe to our podcast now. It's free. Come on, everybody likes free. It's free to do so, so that way when you do subscribe on Google air or iTunes or wherever. When a new podcast goes up, you get this little note that says, cool. Goodness has arrived. Go check us out. And that way you get in on the podcast as soon as possible. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, which obviously you do because you're here and you've listened to this one, then please share it with your friends and go over to iTunes and give us a five star rating. Give us five stars. Cause you know, we're worth five stars, aren't we? It's free. Come on, help us out. And uh, again, we're trying to build a community here. It's not about me and David and Ben. It's not about me individually or David individually or Ben, or it's not about you. It's about all of us working together and doing everything we can to help each other out. And we're providing all this information, getting all these cool guests on. Uh, I'm excited about talking to the guests and then you help us out with that five-star rating. So click in the link to the video description to grab your copy of the show notes And those are going to include the tips, tactics and skills and links and all that good stuff that I'm sure you're becoming accustomed to now. And if you're new to the podcast, then you've got to get into the show notes, all kinds of good stuff there. And go to patreon.com forward slash the survival show to unlock exclusive subscriber rewards, including all kinds of cool podcasts, training videos, resources, and gear that we're coming up with. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the survival show podcast.